Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry. So, Stuff You Should Know. Super Volcano. Super Volcano. <laughs> was that... What was that? You know what that was. Oh, jeez. You and that song. I can't help it. For nine years, you've been yep. humming the final countdown <laughs> by Europe. Yep. About every... Oh, I don't know. Every three months or so. It's the for world's, nine years. It's the world's most effective <laughs> earworm. Do you do that to Yumi with the uh, final countdown? She's like, it, it, it doesn't get to her. It bounces right off of yeah. her. She's like, try your worst. <laughs> um, super volcanoes. If you listen to volcanoes. Well, we did that one, yeah. Or our Yellowstone, or I guess it was geysers. Yeah. Nature's innuendo. <laughs> that was a great title. Um, then some of this might seem a little bit familiar, but why not cover it as its own thing? Well, it is its own thing they're starting to figure out. Yeah, like this article even says, don't even think of it as a amped up volcano. Yeah. It says, stop, stop. They should call it something else then. They really should. I mean, you can make a case that, yes, it's calling it a super volcano it does make sense in a way. Um, because it is obviously magma pushing up through the earth. Sure. Uh, but that's pretty much where the comparisons end. Yeah. And that does, that's a pretty deep comparison between a volcano and a super volcano. But there's a lot of different stuff going on. And the more we look into these things, the, frankly, the scarier they become. Yeah. I mean, at, right out of the gate, one of the big things that is different from a volcano is a volcano is usually like, a mountain that you can look at. Yes. With smoke coming out of it and point to. You can keep an eye on it, in other words. Yeah. And uh, whereas a supervolcano is usually categorized by a big depression in the earth from a past explosion, like a crater or something. Yeah. Or it might be like nothing. That crater might be fully filled in yeah. by this point. It might be a forest. It could be. Um, it could be a hot spot, like in Yellowstone, as we'll see, where yeah. there's a lot of geysers and hot springs. Uh, but the, the point is, is it's a... A supervolcano is a massive amount of magma, a chamber, a magma chamber, possibly a a magma reservoir feeding the magma chamber, something even bigger. Um, and it's, it's connected or near a thin spot in the mantle that it may or may not have created itself in the earth's surface. And that eventually, Something's go- like the pressure inside is going to build up. There's going to be enough magma, and then kaboom, things are going to go south pretty quick because these things yeah. are so big and so explosive that they could they can change the global climate, possibly irreversibly on a human time scale. Yeah, whenever I read about stuff like this, or even your garden variety natural disaster, it just feels like the Earth. Is like I, you know, one day I'm going to kill all the people. Yeah. You realize this slowly but surely. Like all humans will be gone. I want to just explode you all. Yeah, that's so Gaia, Gaia hypothesis. <laughs> is it? Kind of. All right, but it's not going to be anytime soon. In the case of a super volcano. Well, we hope. Well, sure. I saw. I saw. It's been calculated that they go off every I don't know hundred thousand or so years. Yeah. 
The most recent one was something like um, 24,000, 26,000 years ago. It's not too bad. Yeah. And, so uh, we, we got a little time. New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Ta- so it, we should say this is spelled T-A-U-P-O. Here in the States, we would typically pronounce that like Taupo maybe. Yeah. But based on our Maori episode, uh-huh. I would guess that it's actually pronounced <laughs> Could you repeat that again? <laughs> so let's talk about how big these things can be. Uh, Sumatra, 74,000 years ago, there was a super eruption that some say, and of course we don't know because it was 74,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So all we can do is kind of make our best guess. But some people think that th- this almost was an extinction-level event in full. It almost wiped out the entire human race. Right. It could have jump-started a 10,000-year ice age, leaving behind a, a crater or a caldera uh, that was about 19 by 62 miles. Right. That is huge. That's a, yeah, that was Mount Toba, the Toba super eruption, right? Yes, 670 cubic miles yeah. of ejecta. Yeah, and that 10,000-year ice age thing, that's noteworthy. Yeah. Uh, they think that this whole thing was bad enough that it reduced humans down to several thousand people and that there were plenty more humans before then, but that the um, the effects from shooting um, gases- Yeah, ejecta. Uh-huh. But gases that float up into the atmosphere and actually reflect sunlight, cooling the earth below it, um, really disrupted a lot of- normal processes here on Earth, cooled it, and made it really tough to survive. That's a hallmark of supervolcanoes is their their global effect. Yeah, like a nuclear winter, basically. Right, exactly. Changing the temperature of the Earth. Yeah. Maybe not permanently, but long enough to where you're SOL. Right. 10,000-year ice age, you're, you're not going to be happy during those years. Uh, these days, um, North America, South America, and Asia are the greatest risks, and there's one... Um, actually, it says where those three places are the greatest risk, but there's one in Europe. In Italy. Yeah, that supposedly, and this was from, geez, just like four months ago, mm-hmm. uh, I read an article that said that the one in Italy, it's in Naples. What's it called? The, uh, Campi Flegrei. <laughs> or as we say in the United States, the Flegrean Fields area. The Burning Fields. Yeah, that, that should, give you an indication of what we're talking about. <laughs> Didn't get that name for nothing. No, but it's right beneath Naples. Yeah, but apparently that one is based on computer modeling and physical measurements. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the scientists said, we propose that magma could be approaching the critical degassing pressure level at Camp Flegria. Uh And basically what that means is it's not going to happen like next year, but they have raised the volcano threat level from green to yellow, which means... We need to kind of really start monitoring and study is studying this thing a lot more. Right. The thing is, is they they don't know like how to predict. Like it could happen next year. They're saying it's probably not going to, but it could because we know so little about volcanoes and super volcanoes in particular that like it could just happen. Yeah, like we don't even know for sure how many there are underneath us. No, but they say like six to ten, maybe. 
potentially active ones around the globe right now. Right. And then a total of maybe 30 to 40 that have ever been, right? Yes. Um, but yeah, that one, I don't understand why this article overlooked that one in Europe, but it's, yeah, it's like Europe's toast, basically. Yeah. It's inevitable. Probably next month or two. <laughs> there was one, I think the biggest ever, um, happened here in the States, in Colorado, long before anybody called it Colorado. It was 28 million years ago, and the Fish Canyon Tough event. So here's where super volcanoes really kind of come into um, their own. Yeah. Just the massive uh, amount of damage and stuff they spew out, right? The Fish Canyon Tough event shot out 1,200 cubic miles. So you know what a cube is, right? Uh, yeah. It's like a three-dimensional square. Uh-huh. Invented and by Mr. Rubik. You can, right, exactly. Uh-huh. You can take a little, like an inch by an inch by an inch and create a little cubic inch. Mm-hmm. You can do that with feet. You can do that with a meter. And you just keep going bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually you're going to get to a cubic mile. Yeah. Or a, a cube. cubic kilometer. And this Fish Canyon Tough event spewed out 1,200 cubic miles or 5,000 cubic kilometers Crazy. of rock, of dust, of ash, of molten lava. Yeah. Shot it out. Isn't that nuts? That's so much stuff that literally changes the geography of an entire region when something like that happens. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, All right, I'm going to contemplate the cube, Mm -hmm. and uh, we'll be back right after this to talk a little bit more about Yellowstone. Did you ever watch Jim Henson's The Cube? Remember when we talked about yeah. it on the gym? Did you ever watch it? Uh-huh. Trippy. It's bizarre. Yes. Very weird. Yeah. We love our friends at the Henson Company. Sure. Um, all right. Well, we're going to talk about Yellowstone a little bit, but defining these, and when we talked about volcanoes, defining volcanoes and what makes a volcano or a super volcano is not an exact science. They don't have strict definitions, mm-hmm. but... um. They do try to look at a couple of different things when they're categorizing these these bad mama jamas. Um, magnitude. Did I just say that? Uh-huh. Uh, magnitude, which is the volume of the magma or the mass of magma that's erupted, and then intensity, which is the rate that that happens. Right. Um, so if you're looking at magnitude and intensity, um, like I said, they don't have like a number. They say once it gets over this number. Right. But um, – so I wonder how they do categorize it. They they don't. It's just up in the air. Is like it? they just do not have it set out so that you can say, well, once it hits this and this, uh-huh. it's a, it's officially a super volcano. It's just not laid out like that. As bad as writers of articles want it to be like that, <laughs> right. it's just not at that point. There's just but there are factors where it's like, yeah, I would qualify that as a super volcano. I'm Joe Volcanologist or Jane Volcanologist or Joe versus the volcano. Sure. Very nice. Um, 
and they usually do it by comparison, right? Yeah. So, like, as far as intensity goes, that's how fast magma erupts, right? Yeah. In Mount Vesuvius back in 79 CE, with that very famous uh, eruption that covered Pompeii and Herculaneum. Yeah. Um, if you believe that kind of thing. <laughs> right. I've seen it with my own eyes. Right. Yeah. Um, Mount Vesuvius shot out magma uh, and ejecta at a rate of 100,000 cubic meters a second. Wow. That's a lot, right? Yeah, that's some fast magma. So supervolcanoes erupt at something like tens of millions or hundreds of millions of cubic meters per second. That's a lot, too. Yeah, you don't want to be standing on that road. No, you don't want to be anywhere near it. So that's typically how they're figuring out what constitutes a supervolcano. They look at this volcano and they say, that's bad. Yeah. And then they go, but what about this? And they go, oh, it's super. that's a supervolcano. Uh, there is another categorization they use, which is also a great band name, uh, Volcano Explosivity Index. Yeah. See, the index just kind of throws it off, you know? Yeah. Maybe an album title. Okay. By the okay. band Ejecta. <laughs> not bad. No, not bad at all. So this is when they measure ash column height and the quantity of that ash, pumice, and lava ejected. So not the the volume, but how high it goes. I don't know why they just can't combine all that into one big formula. Right. The you know? Glavin. <laughs> yeah, the Glavin scale. <laughs> right. Uh, but supervolcanoes, there it is a scale, and the highest uh, VEI category is magnitude 8. Uh, which means more than 250 cubic miles and a plume more than 16 miles high. 16 miles, dude. Right. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's super. It is. Um, so you kind of put all this stuff together. You, uh, they don't have it in a single index, but if you combine all this stuff, you start to get an idea of just how much damage a super volcano can do, just yeah. how massive and, and huge it is. So, um, and again, going back to comparisons, Krakatoa was a very famous volcano that erupted in uh, 1883, mm-hmm. and it created what's regarded as the loudest sound ever recorded here on Earth. It traveled around the world four times over five days, and we know that it did because by 1883, there were um, weather stations that had barometers all over the world, and they would record the shock wave from the sound oh. every 34 hours like clockwork for 5 days it just kept traveling around the world from this explosion this volcanic explosion it was heard by human ears 3000 miles away holy cow it was one of the most astounding events that's ever happened in recorded history and there's a really cool article just about the sound it made called the sound so loud that it circled the earth four times on nautilus Oh wow! So go check it out. I think everybody should read this article. It's a really cool article. And did it, it killed like thirty six thousand people? Yeah, and it just and that wasn't a very populated area. No, uh, uh-uh. no, Krakatoa was um in uh, Java, Indonesia. Yeah, I guess Krakatoa in the eighteen eighties was probably not, you know, New York City. No, no, it wasn't. So yeah, the idea that it, it killed thirty six thousand people, yeah, it wasn't a densely populated area right around the mountain. It killed a lot of people spread out. Like Naples. Yeah. They're talking about, I think, like 500,000 people live in just that immediate area. Yeah. So it'd be just devastating. That would not be good. Man. Um, all right. So we talked about it's it's kind of tough to 
predict these things, kind of tough to pin down where they are and to study them. And Yellowstone, which we've kind of danced around a little bit, not literally. <laughs> we danced with does. the wolves <laughs> in Yellowstone. Uh, Yellowstone in particular is a big deal because um, of just how big this thing could be. Uh, they're talking 30 by 45 miles underground, stretching from northern Nevada uh, through southern Idaho to northwest Wyoming. Um, it's basically a system 350 miles long and about 18 million years old. This just, man, well, it's well, just bubbling underground. That's the trail of volcanic activity that's yeah. taking place. Yeah, which ends at Yellowstone. Right, and the one that's actually the super volcano beneath Yellowstone is like 30 miles by 45 miles. Right. Which is huge. The one in, in Europe at the burning fields is about seven seven miles wide. Yeah. Which is enormous in and of itself. But, you know, 30 to 45, that's way bigger, I'm afraid to say. Um, and it's made up of a, uh, a magma chamber beneath the surface, a few miles beneath the surface. And they thought that that was the extent of the supervolcano. Apparently, they did a survey in 2015. They figured out that this chamber has about 2,500 cubic miles worth of magma in it. There's also a reservoir beneath that magma chamber, and that that reservoir has 11,200 cubic miles. All this magma poised right beneath Yellowstone, and the pressure's just building and building and yeah. building. And that's the other thing about supervolcanoes. They seem to erupt not slowly where lava just spills out, like in, say, like Hawaii at Kilauea, where it's very famously just this pretty steady flow, but it's not explosive. Right. These things blow up. Yeah. And when they do, they can bury areas around them in hundreds and hundreds of meters of, of ash that solidifies and turns into the new crust of the earth. It turns us all into statues. It does. So that with my own eyes, too. Uh, all right. Well, let's take our final break, and we'll talk a little bit more about what lies beneath Yellowstone Park right after this. Right, so Yellowstone has had, um, I mean, it's had events in the past. That's why they know there's going to be one in the future. Right. Uh, about 2.1 million years ago, the Huckleberry Ridge event. Um, that is a great name. I don't think they called it that 2.1 million years ago. Yeah. But uh, that had a 588 cubic mile blast and created a crater about the size of four um, Manhattans. And I... Assume they mean everybody knows exactly what Manhattan <laughs> size is. Sure, just put four New York cities side by side, right, or on top of each other, or however you want to arrange them. Yeah, maybe in a little spin spinning pinwheel. Mush them together in a ball, like use soap bars <laughs> remnants. You know, yeah. Uh, one point three million years ago, they had one at Mesa Falls. And that was only about sixty-seven cubic miles of ejecta. That was tiny. But it, they still consider that a supervolcano because no one seems to care that it has no definition. <laughs> right. What else? 
640,000 years ago at Lava Creek, that one spit out 240 cubic miles, about 1,000 cubic kilometers. And apparently its ash pillar hit 100,000 feet. Whoa. Wow. That's pretty awesome, right? Yeah. So, yeah, they're looking at these things and they're saying, "Um, this is probably a pretty decent map of what's going to happen at Yellowstone eventually. Yeah, we have an article on our site, too, called What If the Yellowstone Supervolcano Erupted? Mm Mm-hmm. And they said it could kill as many as 90,000 people immediately and put a 10-foot layer of molten ash as far as 1,000 miles around the park. Calls, ten, 10 feet? Yeah, 10 that, feet deep. That would cover your one-story house. Yeah, for 1,000 miles. And um, they said that nuclear winter would probably almost be a certainty. Probably be a certainty. <laughs> <laughs> almost probably. Uh-huh. Uh, it would basically blot out the sun and cool the earth, um, which would kill our crops. It would be really, really bad. But they said, <laughs> yeah. Do you remember, do you remember, um, in 2014, 15, when that, uh, Icelandic volcano yeah. went off? And the effect that it had, was it 2010? Uh-huh. And the effect that it had on air travel in Europe? Yeah. And it was just air travel. And everybody kept waiting for it to clear up. And it, for weeks, yeah, yeah. like flights were getting delayed, canceled, rerouted. Like Europe was just off the, the map as far as plane travel was going. It was just plane travel. And that was a pretty small volcano. Yeah. It was in no way, shape, or form a super volcano. So just, just that one aspect of transportation being affected, let alone the fact that this could like kick off an ice age. There's just so many, so many factors that could come into play that could get us in this way, get us in that way, get us, uh, it could affect our crops through sunlight and through temperature. It could make us super cold, make our toes fall off. There's just so many different ways it could, it could affect us. Yeah. Um, that we just, the average person is not walking around thinking about this, and they should be. Well, true, but um, not to be alarmist, they, uh, the U.S. <laughs> Geological Survey said that the probability that um, that Yellowstone will blow its top is point zero 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 one four percent each year. Yeah, so one in seven hundred thousand, right. which is on par of any given individual um, being struck by lightning. So that makes me feel better. Yep, yeah, there's still plenty of lightning out there. Yeah, and you never know what's going to happen. So apparently this the hot spot causes the earth above it to dome once in a while when it feels like it's showing off, right? Yeah, I bet the park rangers at Yellowstone when they see that are like, oh man, God, is this it? There was a 2003 temperature increase just a few inches below the soil. In some spots, it was hitting like 200 degrees Fahrenheit, boiling the sap in trees nearby. Oh, man. It was getting hot. And then apparently it started to cool down again. And what's probably going on in these processes, there's a process called incubation, right? Where they're just sitting there because the reservoir and the chamber are... They have finite space. So the more magma that builds up in it, the, the higher the pressure builds. And if that pressure starts to build and all of a sudden escapes a little bit, that magma is going to shoot up. And as that magma shoots up, it starts to form air bubbles because the change in elevation, we're talking, is traveling miles very quickly upward. Yeah. So bubbles start to form. As those bubbles break up, they explode. It's very much like champagne. And it shoots out and it... It allows more magna to follow behind it, and it follows the same process. So there's a huge explosion, and it can actually be hastened by earthquakes 
or it can also be um, like that relieves the pressure delayed by earthquakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of different factors involved, but during this period where the pressure is building and building and building, it's the incubation period. And the reason it changes from, say, one year to the next is if it's not getting as much magma, then some of that magma higher up has the chance to kind of cool and solidify and fall back down and pressure's relieved. But we have no way of tracking that. We can just be like, oh my god, the ground is bowing up. Right. That's that's about where we're at right now. But don't they generally think that dormancy is like the longer it sits, the worse it's going to be if but, when it eventually does go off? That's what I read. Interesting. Do you have anything else? Yeah. Apparently, one other thing: um, if uh, you were around a volcano that went off, it, I, I would guess any volcano, it would be like breathing tiny glass needles, mm. thanks to all of the um, silicates that were ejected into the air. Man. And I have even one more other thing. There was a an a volcano that went off in 1815, Tambora, I believe. I'm not sure exactly where that was, but uh, the Tambora Earth or volcano is credited with the creation of Frankenstein. Really? Yeah, it was the the year without a summer, and in the northern in northern Europe, the uh, summer was super super cool. Elsewhere, there was basically no summer. It was snow the whole the whole time, um, but because of that, Mary Shelley and uh, Byron, right? Yeah, and uh, her husband Percy by Shelley, mm-hmm. um, all were stuck inside for during a summer vacation, and that was when she came up with Frankenstein because they had a scary story contest. Yeah, it's a, there was a movie about that. Yeah, but that that contest may never have happened, and Frankenstein may never have been created had it not been for that volcano going off. Yeah, that was a freaky movie. I can't remember the name of it. Was it Gothic? Lost Summer? Oh, was it? There may have been more than one. Gothic? I just, I just remember the whole time there was a lot of drugs, and Mary Shelley was like, Percy, why can't you be more like Lord Byron? And he said, because I'm Percy. Oh, really? <laughs> no, Who was in it? I'm just kidding. Uh, no, uh, man, was it called Gothic? I don't know. I seem to remember that. It was kind of a... Why do I think Julian Sands was in it? This is oh, all it sounds like, like a Julian Sands movie. It's all very much in the very... 19th century drugs? Yeah. It's in the back of my head. We'll find out. Buried deep. Uh, if you want to know more about volcanoes and Frankenstein and all that stuff, just type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. Since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, Cool Uncle from Katie. Uh, hey guys, this is about free speech. In 1990, my uncle, uh, Dennis Barry, was the director of Contemporary Art Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, the museum brought in the Robert Maplethorpe, uh, Robert Maplethorpe Art Exhibit titled The Perfect Moment, which resulted in an uproar as seven of the photographs were seen as pornographic from some conservative folks. My uncle defended the artwork as freedom of speech and was subsequently arrested, charged with obscenity, and went to trial. It was the first time in history that a museum was actually taken to trial with criminal charges over the contents of an exhibition. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spent a few nights in jail, received death threats, and was uh, harassed all over town, but he stuck to his firm beliefs that artists have the right to express themselves freely in America and, furthermore, deserve to have their work exhibited. Uh, during the trial, art experts were brought in to help the jury decide if they were uh, pornographic in nature. They say that, can you see Matlock being like, I say so. <laughs> Is a bullwhip in a man's <laughs> rectum art? I never saw that show. Is he Southern? 
No, that was Foghorn Leghorn. But oh, yeah, okay. he was definitely Southern. Uh, ultimately, the jury concluded that Maplethorpe's work was, in fact, art, and that my uncle, um, Northern Re- Museum, was not guilty of obscenity charges. That is so cool. Very cool. Do you remember that? I remember that case. Oh, really? Yeah, man. When Maplethorpe, like... Uh, oh, yeah. It was a huge deal. I Maybe it's because I was in Toledo at the time, so they made a big oh, deal out of it. But it was so. pretty big. Uh, she said, to this day, it's still the most famous trial of freedom of speech in the art world. Boom. Uh, and as an artist myself, I'm pretty darn proud of my uncle's actions way back when. He admits himself that the events and effects of that trial never really go away. He's still recognized for his actions, and museums and galleries across the country have been able to show challenging artwork that perhaps would have been cast aside had my uncle and his awesome First Amendment lawyer, H. Lewis Serkin, Esquire. (laughs) And not won that trial. That's awesome. Uh, Ultimately, the result of the trial left a positive legacy for Contemporary Art Center, and my uncle went on to become the founding director of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where he had to defend offensive song lyrics as art in order to get them displayed in the museum. That is such a great email. I love that email. He's a pretty interesting guy, to say the least. And that is from Katie Berry. And Katie, boy, tell your uncle, Dennis, that we have a lot of respect for him. For real. Like, not fake respect like we usually dole out. (laughs) (laughs) No, like, seriously, it's a a great story. Hats off to your uncle. You know, one thing um, I'm sad about that we didn't mention in the First Amendment episode was that whole two live crew episode. Oh, yeah. You remember that? Uh Uh-huh. They all went to, like, I think they went to the Supreme Court over their lyrics, didn't they? Yeah. It was a big deal. Everybody expected them to just lay down and roll over. Nope. Two live crew don't roll over for nobody. No. Uh, you know, we're going to do one on the PMRC at some point, so we'll probably cover it in that. Okay, good. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can s- tweet to us. We're at SYSK Podcast. We're at Josh Um Clark. You can hang out on Facebook.com slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. Send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 